the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Tyler for Friday, July 2nd, 2021. Yes, indeed, as we are heading into Independence Day weekend, and I will wish you a happy 4th of July. Um, if you are feeling like celebrating such a thing, there you go. Um, and throughout American history class, as I recall, um, as I was growing up, so much emphasis was put on the the power, the positive power of compromise. You know, they, they were always talking about how the reason why our government worked so well was because compromise was a forced thing. Because you have checks and balances. You have all of these things that add up to making sure that everybody's voice at least is heard and considered when you are making policies. Right. Problems are solved that way. Disputes avoided. Great policies are forged in the fires of debate and reconciliation, right? Well, honestly, let's stop for a moment and take a look at the fact that sometimes compromise isn't the best way to go. I mean, let's think about the three-fifths compromise. It was an infamous deal that broke the deadlock at the Constitutional Convention and allowed America to become a thing, but it uh, it was about how enslaved people ought to be counted for purposes of representation in the federal government. Should an enslaved person be counted as a person? No, count them as three-fifths of a person. It was a brilliant solution, we are taught in history class. A brilliant solution, a creative middle point between the two factions that wanted either no counting of someone who's a slave or in a, a, each slave being counted as a whole person to be represented. That's the country that you're in here. The United States of America saved by the power of compromise. <laughs> and then, of course, it would later be by the Missouri Compromise, the one that drew a line down the middle of the country and said any new states admitted north of that line cannot have slaves and any states below it can. Now, these are 
immature narratives to to be put mildly for a child's education as an adult we have the power to reflect on the more complex legacy on these and many other compromises but what does it say about our country that it was founded on the premise that some people were treated as property and quite literally counted less than others are these compromises really worth celebrating given that they only delay the inevitable war over the uh, unbridgeable differences i mean the Missouri Compromise was repealed just 34 years later under yet another compromise called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, one that traditionally omitted, uh, one that you don't hear a lot in the compromise lore because it was enacted to admit uh, a bloody struggle over uh, slavery that foreshadowed the Civil War to begin just seven years later. So in other words, <laughs> it failed in seven years. I mean, how about the fact that today, right now, we're still fighting? about how to count people for purposes of representation in government. So clearly, the power of compromise <laughs> has its limitations. I mean, these are adult questions for adult institutions, maybe, but the problem is, is that the U.S. Senate has proven once again it's only interested in the children's versions of things. For the last several months, the Senate has been worshipping at the altar of bipartisanship, which is compromise by another name. In a quest to, as Delaware Senator Chris Coons wrote in a Washington Post op-ed, said, bring our country back together via a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Now, Coons added, nothing will showcase that the United States is back, like seeing Republicans and Democrats coming together around a bold infrastructure package that will make us more competitive around the world. The details of this bill are not encouraging to those concerned about the future of our planet. The compromise, which President Biden has signed on with, entails tabling crucial policies needed to mitigate even more terrible consequences of climate change than what we're already locked into. Hoping to pass through a Democrat-only reconciliation bill, Biden said if the reconciliation bill doesn't pass, he won't sign the compromise deal, but we don't know what this reconciliation bill looks like or if it can pass the necessary climate change mitigation policies without additional compromise for centrist power brokers like Kristen Sinema of Arizona or Joe Manchin of West Virginia, two of the Senate's most stalwart bipartisan worshipers. To put it more simply, in order for any of the meaningful climate change provisions to pass, the people most committed to bipartisanship will have to abandon that commitment because Republicans don't want any of it to pass. In the current bill, more money is committed to infrastructure that harms the environment than to sustainable ones and remediation efforts. It is, in other words, a compromise agreement that climate change can and will get worse unless Democrats are able to perform a dangerous balancing act to get enough Republicans to sign on to passing this bill while also passing the reconciliation bill on the narrowest margins. Now, this argument is familiar among moderate Democrats, one that substitutes policy goals like reducing emissions in a manner that could actually benefit ourselves and the rest of the world with a type of 
mushy feel-good stuff one expects from a depressed parent hoping to save a broken marriage with one more pleasant family dinner at least, please. (sighs) Chasing this dream of bipartisanship, some Senate Democrats are signing on to continue the very infrastructure policies that have gotten us to the position to require a gigantic infrastructure bill to begin with. There are too many roads that require too much maintenance that local and state tax dollars cannot financially support, but federal legislation continues to incentivize building more of these roads, making our infrastructure even more expensive and unsustainable to maintain. All the while, Federal policies continue to incentivize the building of unsustainable residential subdivisions that encourage sprawl and car dependency, a demographic pattern that cannot continue if we want to reach a net zero emissions economy. The road to climate ruin, in this case, is paved with compromise and bipartisan support. I I mean... Okay, here's an example. Canada, right, said they are going to ban all sale of new fuel-powered cars and light trucks in 2035, and that they will have goals in 2025 and 2030 towards that. So in other words, starting in 2025, they want to see X percent of car sales be anything but fuel powered. So that means no diesel, no gas for this percent of the car sales in Canada by 2025. A larger percent of that, possibly half or more, being non uh, diesel and non gasoline by 2030. And finally, by 2035, if you're selling a new vehicle, not used, but a new vehicle in Canada, By 2035, it cannot be powered by gasoline or diesel fuel or any other of that fuel kind. It has to be electric or some other way of propulsion that uh, doesn't burn fuel. I mean, that's, you know, here's the thing. That's still for a 14-year process from now um, and may not be fast enough, but boy, oh boy. That's way more than we're doing in our compromise-centric Congress right now. The myth of bipartisanship is powerful here in America um, because it's deeply embedded in our ideals. It's this wishful thinking of a nation that's always been bitterly divided over basic questions like who gets to vote, how those votes should be counted, uh, not to mention that these issues are often disputed with violence, not just peaceful debate. Many bipartisan worshipers, including Joe Biden, wistfully look back on a bygone era of Senate congeniality and wish it could return. As with most nostalgic tropes, rarely do they specify an exact period they wish to return to, because it doesn't really exist. But insofar as anyone can tell, They're broadly referring to the post-war years, in particular the years from Eisenhower in the 50s to Watergate. So basically, somewhere from the early 50s to the early 70s, that 20-year period there. 
Some extend the bipartisanship golden era even further into the Clinton years, but Democrats will rarely do this because much of the legislation passed under the neoconservative and neoliberal Reagan-Bush-Clinton eras, in particular around immoral mass incarceration and inequality-boosting global trade agreements, are now widely and appropriately regarded as deeply flawed at best and potential human rights violations at worst. These were, to put it lightly, different political times. Being a Republican or a Democrat didn't instantly signpost your identity back then. A Democrat could be a progressive like Idaho Senator Frank Church or Southern racist like Georgia Senator Richard Russell. A Republican could support the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency and massive expansions of publicly funded health care like Richard Nixon did back when he signed him into law. Or they could vehemently oppose any and all forms of government intervention like Barry Goldwater. The Republican mayor of New York in the 1960s, John Lindsay, was essentially a Democrat by many modern standards, especially on racial issues, and also a member of the same party as Goldwater, who voted against the Civil Rights Act. There used to be such a thing as a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat. This so-called bipartisanship manifested the most votes uh, in most votes of that era because the party simply didn't reflect ideology. To take just one of countless examples, the 1964 Voting Rights Act, landmark that it was, 46 of the 73 votes in favor were Democrats, meaning 27 Republicans also voted in favor. Of the votes against, the vast majority, 21 of them, were also Democratic. This sounds like bipartisanship when we apply the politics of today, party politics, retroactively to history, but it's a fake kind of bipartisanship because nobody's actually compromising on the partisan divides of the day. There was a clear pattern to the Democrat votes against the Voting Rights Act. Both senators from the following states voted against it. Your Alabama, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. Of course, these would be Republicans today. If you had senators from those voting against the Civil Rights Act, you could count on them being Republicans. But back then, the Democratic Party allowed such blatant racism to exist within its, its uh, confines. So successful bipartisanship is an illusion. It's projected by the mirage of history. There was no bipartisanship in the 1964 Civil Rights Act because the people who supported civil rights for all voted for it, and the people who did not voted against it, period. It, it, just because nowadays all of the one would be wearing one team color and all of the other would be wearing another team color doesn't change the fact that it was right down the line of support and non-support. It wasn't that somebody who didn't support civil rights said, oh, well, I'll compromise and, and vote for this anyway, so that, that way you'll compromise and vote for something for me later. No. Absolutely not. It was an exercise in, of power in a democracy, the complex dynamics of which is the adult's version of political history, and resistant to the morality tales of camaraderie and goodwill among men. Over the ensuing decades, each party gradually aligned to become the parties we know today, where conservatives and the religious right gravitate towards Republicans, liberals, progressives tend to align with the Democrats. Why exactly this happened is complex enough question to require several books. Um, 
You can actually look up um, uh, historian Rick Perlstein's books, um, uh, P-E-R-L-S-T-E-I-N, if you're going to look him up. Rick Perlstein um, wrote a number of books. So if you're interested in how and why that happened, you can check those out. That's uh, a good recommendation. However, in an ideal world, the two parties should work together to be a productive government that serves the interest of the American people. Each side wants certain things. Politicians have their own provincial interests that need to be served or ignored according to the merits of the ideas, and compromise ought to be arrived at that everyone can live with. That's the standard to which the supposed greatest country in the world should hold its politicians to. You know, to be adults. Unfortunately, we do not live in that world. While other countries are, for example, enacting moratoriums on new road-building projects, making huge investments in sustainable travel options because there's simply no more time to waste on getting to zero emissions, look at what I said about Canada earlier, Democrats are trying to talk us into spending more on new roads that will lock in more emissions for the simple reason that that's what Republicans are going to agree to. Now, now, if you're unclear on why more roads is a bad idea, let me just be really clear. Um, Cars that use fuel are a significant factor in polluting and causing greenhouse gas emissions, which is a good chunk of the problem with the climate crisis. It's not the only thing, and believe you me, I am not one of these people who will be right here saying, oh, we all have to do our part, and we can ignore what the corporations are doing for pollution. No, the corporations are so, so deep into this. But in the meantime, we can't ignore the fact that the more roads we have, the more cars we'll have to travel down them, the greater amount of emissions are simply going to have to be spent to use those roads. And again, we're already having trouble maintaining the roads we have. We don't need more. Um, I think right now you can pretty much get to anywhere in America from anywhere using roads. We just need to keep up the ones we have, more or less. Anyway... As with all negotiations and potential compromises, the relevant question isn't, can we do a deal, but rather, what are we compromising on? There's always a deal to be done if one shrinks low enough. There's always a compromise to be had if one surrenders enough of your beliefs. You know, but sometimes an appropriate course of action is not to make a deal at all. We may be at that point with the infrastructure bill, since it may well be better for the environment to forego all the other elements of the infrastructure bill if it means no new roads. But that is, of course, not ideal, because, you know, we need to maintain what we have and we need to build a lot more of the sustainable infrastructure we don't have. There is a time and place for true compromise, but not on the issue of climate change. It's an existential threat to our future we've spent far too long compromising on. Of course, Republicans also believe there are issues which cannot be compromised, including on issues relating to climate change. That's the adult version of our nation's history, two opposing factions with irreconcilable differences that agree for a time to change nothing 
ignorant of the fact that when nothing changes, everything changes. And in the end, every dispute is eventually settled one way or another. The Senate's compromising all right, but not in the way that they think. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Upon the stand, we spoke of was and when. Although I wasn't there, he said I was his friend, which came as some surprise. I spoke into his eyes. I thought you died alone a long, long time ago.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. It's story time, ladies and gentlemen. Well, specifically, I want to share with you um, a firsthand source piece by Meredith McGraw. Um, she wrote it and published it at Politico.com um, on the 29th. So, you know, this is pretty current stuff. And it's specifically about her experience um, in about 24 hours worth of time in the Cleveland area of Ohio, attending a Trump rally that happened just this past week. Meredith writes, it was 6 a.m. in Cleveland. I had spent the night trying to sleep stretched out across three chairs in the baggage claim at the airport and was wearing the same sweaty, grass-stained sundress I'd worn at the Donald Trump rally from the night before, when a familiar face sat down next to me on the flight back to Washington, D.C. There was Marjorie Taylor Greene, sporting camo shorts and rhinestone bracelets, sipping a green Monster Energy drink. Hours later, the Georgia lawmaker and CrossFit devotee had delivered a stem winder that made Trump's own stream of consciousness remarks seem subdued in comparison. I saw you speak at the rally last night, I said, my eyes bloodshot and my forehead leathery from baking in the June sun the day before. Oh, Green perked up before quickly deflating when I informed her I was a reporter. You, referring to the media, don't treat me very fairly, she said. Meredith continues, My days aren't normally quite this unusual, but it seemed oddly appropriate given the moment. Trump's reemergence on the political scene is promising to spark a seismic disruption to America's political system bigger than the one he caused when he came down his gilded escalator six years ago. Where once his supporters were hopeful, now they seemed aggrieved. The crowds are more frenzied, the conspiracies more fantastic, the characters more outlandish. That includes Marjorie Taylor Greene, a freshman congresswoman from ex-urban Atlanta, and self-described QAnon repentant who, with just six months in office, has managed to get expelled from her committees and nearly censured for comparing mask-wearing to the Holocaust. A resume like that would, in past times, relegate her to the fringes of her party at best. But on our chat home, she explained just how central she is and set to become in the Trump comeback narrative. The former president, she said, had personally invited her to the rally. And schedule permitting, Marjorie Taylor Greene plans to attend his upcoming events across the country this summer. Now, Greene is an unapologetic type doesn't apologize, which goes some way to explaining why she's appreciated by Trump, a man who is loath to ever admit fault or apologize. On stage, Trump has praised her as loved and respected, tough, smart, and kind. <laughs> During our flight home, she explained her penchant for making controversial statements as a byproduct of her Northwest Georgia upbringing. That's just how people talk back home, she says. She said she felt the media had given her, a mom and businesswoman, an unfair shake, though the controversy that surrounds her is often of her own making. I mean, like the time she attracted headlines for agreeing with people who said the Parkland massacre was a false flag planned shooting. She told me she continues to believe 
The 2020 election was stolen, though its validity has been proven time and again. She never once asked to go off the record, even after I revealed I was a reporter. As I sat there in our row, half asleep and half awake, it had been a long 24 hours. Now, earlier that day, I traveled to the Lorain County Fairgrounds in rural Northeast Ohio to cover Trump's first true post-presidential rally. The events tend to resemble a cross between a NASCAR tailgate and a traveling circus. Vendors from states far away come to sell their MAGA hats and Trump t-shirts. There are diehard fans who camp out days before to get a prime position. Strangers give each other high fives and honk their car horns as they pass houses flying Trump flags or now flags that say F. Biden. That's an FCC-regulation-friendly version of what the flags say, FYI. On Saturday evening, Trump had come to town to support congressional candidate Max Miller, a former White House aide who gained his endorsement partly because he was a loyal foot soldier willing to take on Representative Anthony Gonzalez, one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump following the January 6th Capitol riot. But no one really seemed to care about Miller or Gonzalez. Few of the attendees registered any opinion about the congressional race. Two people I interviewed from the 16th district didn't even know who either Gonzalez or Miller were. They were there for Trump. They wanted to hear from Trump and, if not him, then the supporting cast of allies who have eagerly fed the fraud that the 2020 election was stolen, ripped from the hands of voters like, you know, them. My pillow CEO Mike Lindell, a Trump confidant and donor who has pushed conspiracy theories about the election so wild that he's now a defendant in a multi-million dollar defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems, was greeted like a veritable rock star. Wearing a suit and tie, sweat glistening off his face, he posed for selfies with fans as they screamed out, HERO! at his mere passing by. Lindell may have been one of the evening's main actors, but the play itself was a fantasy about what happened in November 2020. On stage, a math teacher from Cincinnati gave a bizarre PowerPoint presentation to a patient audience that squinted in the sun to see slides of squiggly lines that the teacher said amounted to evidence of widespread coordinated election fraud. He used his fuzzy math to quote-unquote prove Trump actually won the election, and the audience nodded along. When it was Marjorie Taylor Greene's turn to speak, she asked the audience, Who's your president? Trump, they replied, even though the year's, you know, 2021, Joe Biden occupies the White House. Not that the crowd needed much convincing. When asked, um, fellow uh, attendee Richard Sturczewski, uh, a resident of Wellington, Ohio, if he wanted Trump to run in 2024, he said, well, how do you run for president if you're already president? When he finally took the stage, Trump attacked Biden's policies and became animated when he pivoted to the past, talking about his negotiations with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un and his plans for a border wall. There was, you know, a familiarity to it all, the chance of four more years and lock him up, this time aimed at infectious disease expert Anthony Fauci, you know, not the lock her up of Hillary Clinton era. 
The recitation of the sinister poem, The Snake, comes to mind. And yet, there were signs this rally was different. During past rallies, Trump's supporters applauded Trump as he trashed immigrants, demonized the media, echoed his calls to lock up opponents, but they also felt hopeful before that the real estate magnet was giving them a voice, that Trump somehow was their champion. There was a sense that this charismatic outsider would empower them to change Washington and a joyfulness that came with being part of a movement. Well, now, this audience felt cheated. We the people are pissed off, one popular rally t-shirt read. Their champion was no longer in office, which meant he'd been stripped of any real power. It seemed to feed a sense of desperation, even from Trump himself. This subject matter is somewhat depressing, he said of his own speech. In all, Trump spoke for more than 95 minutes, and after the rally was over, supporters marched back to their cars. Gloria, the one-hit wonder disco song about a woman driven to insanity because of a man, could be heard blaring from the speakers. The lyrics, Are the voices in your head calling, Gloria? And people sang along. It was time for us all to go home, and so I did, to the hotel I assumed I'd booked, but when I arrived, the receptionist couldn't find my reservation number. And after calling every hotel in the area, I resigned myself to the fact that a few hours in bed just wasn't going to happen. To the airport I went. One hotel receptionist said, I think it's because there was a Trump rally tonight. Yes, I replied. Yes, there was. So again, that was the in-person, on-the-spot report of the Trump rally in Lorain County, Ohio by Meredith McGraw, filed at Politico. And the reason I wanted to give that to you is because I want to note that the Trump movement hasn't gone away. Trump hasn't gone away. And if anything, they're now kind of in a dark, desperate place because they don't have power and they want it back. Very, very badly. How badly? Well, just ask Arizona. The Republicans there have been pushing repeatedly for partisan audits of what happened in the 2020 election there. And um, when they first pushed for that, um, specifically, they wanted to check the ballots cast in the Phoenix metropolitan area, which was the most Democratic voting area of the state, of course. And they argued that they needed to know if any irregularities or fraud caused President Trump to lose Arizona, which is a rapidly evolving swing state. But interestingly enough, the audit itself could be damaging Republican prospects in that state, according to a new Ben Dixon and Amandi international poll, which shows roughly half of Arizona voters oppose the recount effort. In addition, a narrow majority favors President Biden in a 2024 rematch against Trump. Now, the news isn't entirely promising for Democrats. I mean, a majority of voters don't think Biden should run for a second term. <laughs> and honestly, I'm right there with them. Now, Trump has cheered on the Maricopa County audit and continued to advance baseless conspiracy theories about election fraud as Republicans from other states he lost have made pilgrimages to Phoenix to review the idea of exporting this concept, this constant, constant recount. 
But Arizona Republicans who pay close attention to the state's changing demographics say the audit is not a political winner. Sean Noble, a top GOP operative in the state of Arizona, says, It's a failure. It's a joke. Advising Republicans elsewhere to avoid it. The election is long over, he says. Time to look forward. Noble said public opinion surrounding the audit is just too baked in to change. Even though the firm that conducted the effort, (laughs) called Cyber Ninjas, that's right, that's the name of the firm, hasn't finished its work. In fact, on Friday, Cyber Ninjas announced its team finally uh, got done photographing and recounting the 2.1 million Maricopa County ballots. And the final report is widely expected to make claims about election fraud, reflecting the politics of Cyber Ninja's founder. He appeared, by the way, in a conspiracy theorist documentary film that was rife with falsehoods, according to uh, Arizona Press reports. Now, back to this survey that we were talking about. By a 49 to 46% margin, Arizona voters are opposed to this audit, which puts the result within the poll's margin of error. But the survey, of um, the likely voters found that the intensity of opposition to the audit is exceeded by the intensity of support, with those strongly opposed to it outnumbering those strongly in favor by over five percentage points. And while Democrats and Republicans broke along familiar partisan lines, I mean, you know, go figure, independent voters, where that's who the state is pivoting on in close elections, opposed this audit by 18 percentage points. Fernand Amandi, who conducted the survey, said, As bloody red meat for the MAGA Republican base, this audit is manna from heaven. But the problem is that Arizona is not a red state anymore. It's a swing state. The audit may be serving two interests. Sure, it's firing up the MAGA base but it's giving Democrats the opportunity to make the case to Arizona voters to stick with them. If a candidate supports the audit, the poll shows Arizona voters would be less likely to support that politician by a margin of nine percentage points. That's substantial. Now, Ben Dixon and Amandi International typically surveys for Democrats. They accurately forecast Trump's re-election troubles in Arizona more than a year before the 2020 vote. A Florida poll from the firm uh, that they conducted before the election also accurately warned Democrats that Hispanic voters in Miami-Dade County in Florida were leaning more strongly toward Trump than uh, most people expected. Arizona opposition to the audit grew wider, with a 51% against it and 44% in favor when respondents were informed about the partisan nature of the effort that is being conducted by a firm with no experience in the field, cyber ninjas, and election experts, Democratic officials, and Republican members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors oppose the recount. That's right. Republican members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors don't want this recount happening. Those opponents have pointed out that the voting machines have already been checked by an accredited firm and that the election results were validated by a previous audit. The new polling numbers are similar to a May poll from Arizona-based High Ground Incorporated, which tends to survey for Republicans that found 55% opposed the audit and 41% opposed it. That survey also found that by an 11-point margin, Arizona voters would be less likely to support a candidate who backed the audit. Yeah. In Amandi's poll, Biden's favorability rating 
is almost equally divided, with 49% holding positive views of him and 48% with a negative view. Trump is in negative territory with 46% holding a favorable opinion and 51% a negative opinion. Again, this is the state of Arizona, not the whole country. But in a head-to-head rematch in Arizona, the poll shows that Biden beats Trump by 51 to 44%. The poll, which was conducted June 17th through June 23rd, has a margin of error of plus or minus four percentage points, but still, that's a solid enough win. The results don't necessarily mean Arizonans want Biden to run again, though. Just over five months into his first year in office, only 30%, sorry, 37% of Arizona voters surveyed said Biden deserves a second term, while over half, 53%, say he does not. Now, fueling those numbers are strong Republican opposition to the president and relatively lukewarm Democratic support and double-digit opposition from independents. Amandi said that if Biden is interested in running for re-election and capturing Arizona's electoral college votes, almost ironically and paradoxically, he may want a rematch against Donald Trump. Now, Noble, the Republican operative for Arizona, who said the whole process of the recount with Cyber Ninja was a joke, said he believes that 78-year-old Biden... Uh, has re-election numbers that way because they're driven almost entirely by his age and cognitive ability. He said people are fine with him as president now, but they can't imagine it in the future. I'm, I'm gotta admit, I'm kind of one of those. The poll also gauged the popularity of the state's Republican governor and his two Democratic senators. Governor Doug Ducey is uh, slightly underwater with 47% holding a favorable impression, 49% holding an unfavorable view. Uh, the Republican Ducey is not up for re-election, however. He's term-limited, so it doesn't really matter that part. The part that is a little bit concerning, in some ways, is how the Democratic senators are. And why this is concerning is one thing in particular. Now, Senator Mark Kelly, who faces re-election next year, is viewed favorably. 48% of the voters, and unfavorably by 41%. He's doing pretty well. And so he, we're likely to keep Mark Kelly's seat uh, in the Senate under Democratic um, uh, terms. Now, um, uh, Kirsten um, Cinema, on the other hand, Senator Kirsten Cinema, is viewed favorably by 50% and unfavorably by 37%, which is about identical to her job approval numbers in Arizona. That's disheartening because she's been Joe Manchin, the sequel, and been just horribly bad about um, blocking $15 minimum wage, opposing getting rid of the filibuster, all sorts of things that we need in order to actually make progress. And she's highly regarded in Arizona. Part of this is because of her lack of support for uh, things like getting rid of the filibuster, unfortunately. When specifically informed that she doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, that she's against a $15 minimum wage... 50% of the survey said they support her decision. 39% are opposed. So the problem is, is that Arizona is a swing state and extremely centrist in its views. Doesn't like the idea of things um, getting too wild in either direction. And the problem is right now we need bold solutions. So Arizona is not where we can look, unfortunately, for those solutions to come from. Um, I mean, it's quite possible 
that cinema could be susceptible to her primary challenge in 2024, um, especially with how she's behaved. But the problem is, general election numbers for her are looking really good. So the Democratic Party, wanting to maintain control of the Senate, will likely back uh, Kirsten Cinema really heavily in the primary because they want to keep the seat and they know that she's a winner in the state of Arizona, thanks to her centrist message that avoids the bold changes we need. That's the political reality of America, ladies and gentlemen. We need more progressives taking over Senate seats so that we can take a look at senators like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and say, you know what? Don't need you. You can sit there and oppose all you want. We're going to blow right by you. Until that happens, we've got a problem. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
and we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. And as we wind down this week's episode, I wanted to bring to light a quick report here that noted that uh, solar was the only energy source to outperform expectations during the Texas blackout this year. You may remember, uh, prior to what's been happening right now in Texas, where the weak, weak energy grid there is... uh, forcing people to keep their thermostats at 80 degrees or above during nasty summer temperatures back at the height of winter storm Uri in February, at least four and a half million Texas homes were without power. Blackouts scattered the state surrounded urban hubs like Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, Houston, where Texans were forced to get creative to get by. Uh, Some left without heat, used their ovens and cars to stay warm. Others, left without clean water, boiled what came from their faucets and melted snow. The outages were a way for the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, the state's grid operator, to reduce load on an energy system under strain. As it hurtled toward full-on collapse, load shed, as it calls, which is strategic blackouts, was the only way to prevent the whole system from going dark, according to operators. And while demand on the grid during the time was unprecedented, the temperatures that warranted it weren't. Texas was just unprepared for a weather event that regulators had seen coming for around a decade. There could have been weatherization or strategic crisis communication, regional transmission connections communication, all that could have mitigated some of Winter Storm Yuri's worst effects. Now, that's according to the experts who are the co-authors of a new retrospective report on the causes of the Texas grid failure, published late June in Energy Research and Social Science. Curie Baker, a co-author of the study and assistant professor in civil, environmental, and architectural engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, said the causes were sort of this unfortunate perfect storm. Some of it was poor forecasting. Some of it was not winterizing. Even though a similar event happened in 2011, a lot of it could have been prevented. Now, every energy source powering Texas's grid, with the exception of solar power, underperformed compared to the capacity that ERCOT expected it to be able to handle, according to the report. The report studied two different metrics, normal expected energy capacity and energy capacity under an extreme scenario. Natural gas and coal vastly underperformed both the expected normal energy capacity and expected capacity in an extreme scenario. Wind energy underperformed expected capacity under normal circumstances, but overperformed what was expected in an extreme scenario. So wind did okay. Now, solar? Solar was the only one that overperformed in both. These findings stand completely in contrast with the claims that Texas's grid failures were solely the fault of frozen wind turbines. It got cold last night, the windmills froze, and as a result, millions of Texans are freezing, is what Fox News tried to say at the time. The claim was quickly debunked, also on this show, but continued grid shortages in Texas last week resurfaced fears that failing wind turbines could be the source of the problem. Reports like this one continue to dispel that myth. Baker says, if you're somebody who's looking at making large investments in energy, you're probably going to actually do your research and read between the lines and see wind did not underperform as much as people are claiming. 
Instead, the natural gas system responsible for 46% of Texas's energy uh, supply saw failures in four places. They froze at natural gas wells, outages at compressor stations, and equipment breakdowns at power plants. This created what they called a a vicious cycle in which the state's gas and electrical systems were unable to support each other. Gas is burned to produce electricity, which is then used to support systems that produce gas. So, with both interrupted, the state's grid came within minutes of complete collapse. If Texas had invested in winterization, among other things, it could have prevented this vicious cycle at the root of the blackouts, according to this paper. For wind turbines, that also means strategically de-icing blades. For gas wells, of course, and producing infrastructure lines, that would mean insulation and heat tracing, which would allow, you know, uh, them to not freeze up. Now, the thing that you really need to know, though, solar, solar performed the best. Solar let down as few things as possible. So basically, wind turbines... Keep them de-iced. Everything is beautiful. Solar, you don't have to do a darn thing with. It's natural gas and other fossil fuels that are causing the most problems for Texans with their energy production. Who'd have thunk it? Well, you've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and I'm going to thank you for joining us today. I'll be back next week with a fresh episode. In the meantime, people ask me all the time, Aldous, hey, how do you see the world as clearly as you do? Well, first of all, there's too much information being thrown at you, so you got to close your eyes. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Then you'll be ready to see the world for how it is. At that point, after you've breathed deep, you're ready to see it. All you have to do at that point is simply go ahead and open.